Uh, thank you, Chris. If you weren't here last week, just um, as the week approached and I started reflecting and listened back about and remembered how many times I did say, I've got a great sermon for this week because we kind of went a little bit off script last week um, and I had this sermon prepared and as a bit of a joke, but I kind of meant it, I do think I've got a great sermon. But here's the thing, I think I've got a great sermon most times I preach and often at the end, there's not agreement in the room necessarily. So I can be wrong, but uh, I, I was conscious of kind of in my jest last year as this Sunday approached thinking, I've really not managed expectations well here. Having said that, I genuinely think uh, this is going to be all right. <laughs> no, we are doing a series. If you are uh, new with us or visiting, we're doing a series. We have been doing a series uh, on the Jesus life. And the idea is, and this is, I guess, really the sermon, what I want to speak to today, I think does go to the very heart of what it is if you sit here this morning and identify yourself as a follower of Jesus, a Christian, then this goes to the very heart of, of what that is and even to the heart of what it is to be human. Ah, there's Robbo. Hello, Robbo. Paul Robinson, ladies and gentlemen. Much love, friend, and Banjo. If, if you don't follow... Sorry, this is a left field thing. I'll get back to the awesome sermon. Who's a friend of Robbo's on Facebook? You need to f search him up. You're just going to give you lots of clout here. His banjo playing. My goodness. He looks like a guy who play ban plays banjo. Lives out in the bush. Uh, takes great photos. Yeah, you'd actually need to see his photos. Okay, I'm going to get caught up with it. It's great to see you, Robert. Um, what was I saying? Best sermon ever? Something around the best sermon? Yeah. Heart of what it is to be human? Yeah, that. Banjo playing? No, that was, that was over there. Um, in all seriousness, this is something this morning that I, uh, that I think is um, at the very heart of like, what it is to, to be human and a follower of Jesus. Last week, we had this wonderful experience together. I felt like it was a really sacred moment where um, we came and the hearts came and dedicated Little Pearly. And we had a wonderful moment and out of that, there was so much on theme that as we dig through this morning, if you weren't here last week, where were you? crazy you missed out um it was great but it sort of picks up well, it really does we we actually broke up and talked a little about how we get our identity and we spent some time people in in groups everyone in groups talking about how we gain our sense of identity and when we talk about identity our sense of identity what i'm sort of meaning broadly three things our sense of who we are how we see ourselves the, the sense of value that we carry about how we see ourselves, our self-worth we might call it, and in that is our sense of purpose. So there's sort of three areas there that overlap our sense of how we see ourselves, the value in which we give that, and then also a sense of purpose. Um, uh, so we, we sort of did a little bit of work last week, but we're going to jump into it. I do need to say, before I go any further, it is also good that I'm preaching, if you notice a difference of preaching this this week rather than last week. Last week, I was the parent of two teenagers and a child, whereas this week, I'm the parent, as of today, of one adult and two teenagers. <laughs> so both my boys had birthdays this week, and I do want to 
Micah turned 13, and Jonah's birthday is today, and he's 18. So f- finally, finally, there's an adult in the Clark House. Finally, there's a grown up in there. I'm super proud of these boys and who they are, and happy birthday, fellas. Cool, let's jump into the greatest sermon ever preached. Um, here we go. <laughs> Good start. Still not managing that expectation. Um, so we're looking at doing the things Jesus did. And my little subheading I've got here is Jesus did hard things. What we've been doing is looking at the life of Jesus, if we're to be Jesus' followers, and trying to take that idea at its most simplest. There is this, it's a bit like an antidote of the complexity of the times, that if we see ourselves as following followers of Jesus, there's a way we can think to be a follower of Jesus or to be a Christian. I've got to think certain things and have certain values, and, and it's a bit esoteric. It's a bit in our head. Now, there's, that's part of it. But actually, the plainest reading was actually what happened where people literally just started following. If you've read the Gospels, he did a lot of walking. He did all walking and actually the 12 and then those that sort of the community that gathered around, they literally would follow him. And the early church, if you read Acts, was just a bunch of people who got serious about living like Jesus did. They just tried to follow and do the things he did. Now, that seems complex in the 21st century. It's contested. We're going to talk a little about that. What we're trying to do is like reboot and say, so what does it look like to do the things Jesus did? And we've had some fantastic sermons where people have come and said, well, Jesus did this. Jesus was, was on mission and Clem talked about that and Dwayne talked about it. Jesus sort of reflected, he drew aside. We're, we're looking at the things he did and say, what does it look like to do that? I want to talk about Jesus did hard things. It's kind of a saying that we, comes up a lot these days. It's like we encourage each other because times are challenging. We go, it's okay, we can do hard things. We can do, have you heard that saying before? We can do hard things. It's sort of a way, I think, to maybe push back a little against our culture where so much of our life is shaped by what's comfortable to remind ourselves, no, we're humans. We can do hard things because the times may be called for us to do hard things. I love that Firm Foundation song speaks to that as well. I thought of this. This is a really significant moment. Um, it's the night that Jesus was arrested. It's just after the Last Supper. It's in the lead up and he's in the garden and it's just an incredible moment that's captured where Jesus is praying. Let's, let's read it together. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. We've got this moment where Jesus, his sense of identity being mysteriously I don't pretend to understand this fully. I believe it's true. It was, it was both fully divine and fully human. And we see these two things probably more so than any other passage, the tension between, between these two things. As Jesus, in his identity, his role as being the Lamb of God, the Messiah, there's a sense of purpose in his divinity to the degree to which he understood what was about to happen. And we... In his divinity, you know, clearly he's praying into this sense in which he is going to the cross as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, to represent all sin. 
And so he's struggling with his knowledge of that, his humanity. It's actually all really human emotions. We might say he's feeling all the feels here. It, it talks about his anguish and distress. My soul is crushed with grief. He's praying, he's considering, I'm sure maybe some of the, the torture, the humiliation, but even deeper than that, he that was no sin represented all of sin. God turned away the, the sense in which he's realizing what's before him. This is hard. This is hard. And in this moment, he's got this clash of his identities. He's saying, this is hard. And as I was thinking about this, I actually wanted to, I toyed with sort of giving it a different subtitle, a heading this sermon. Jesus did what was required, not what was preferred. And for me, this statement, you might have heard me tell this story before. I'm going to tell it again because it was so seminal for me um, in this season of my life. We... Um, our family had uh, nine wonderful years in Geelong. And, and in terms of our sense of identity, who we are, our, you know, Christy and I are from Brisbane, but our family's from Geelong, where the, 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 this 18-year-old was just two when we moved down there. It just seems like yesterday. And Daisy was one. Micah was born down there. We had such a rich time. Our family was from Geelong. But we had a sense of being uprooted, maybe, to come back to Brisbane for all sorts of good reasons but it was not what we wanted to do to be honest I love you all I'm glad we're here but it was not what we wanted to do and I had some time away with a someone who was a mentor a spiritual guide in northern Tasmania it's quite idyllic I'd love to say I do this thing all the time because it sounds wonderful and like spiritual I don't do this enough but I would spend time with him in the morning the thing about the great mentors and spiritual guides in your life it's not what they tell you it's the questions they ask right leave you undone and this this person just asked such great questions and then he'd do that in the morning kind of lift the hood of my life and poke underneath and then I would go strolling through the it was just near Cradle Mountain go strolling through the t I say strolling I was driving uh, I'll drive the roads and I was listening to an interview fascinating interview I didn't pay attention but something drew me into it a bit more um, where it was between the, the interviewer was talking to a scientist and they were talking about um, the, the, the amount, they were talking about sustainability or he was talking about sustainability. And have you heard that measure before where they talk about the rate of consumption on the planet and how many Earths it would require to be sustainable? Have you heard that measure? And basically he was saying at the rate in which humanity is consuming non-renewable energies and I forget the figure now but it was something alarming like we need 2.4 earths to sustain what how we're living it's that idea maybe it was 1.7 or so. it was alarming enough it, and so the whole point is we've got to live because you know you might have figured this out we only get one earth so the, the goal of that is getting our sustainability down to one earth and so he was talking very practically about what we would need to do and what that would that look like to reduce our consumption. And he was saying, you know, people are going to need to not travel the world and people are going to need to grow their own food and people get all of these sort of restrictions on lifestyle. And the interviewer was doing their job, being the voice of the people, a bit of devil, devil's advocate, who kept saying, oh, do, do you think people will, will be motivated to do that? Do you think people will want to do that? And we'd say these, you know, well, people are going to need to do this. And he was the interviewer and was sort of increasingly, you know, again, being the voice of the people. And the scientist got quite annoyed. 
And at one point, to a very testy, and I love these moments when they happen live because it's so human. It was like the tension, you could feel it. And the scientist, who up to that point had been quite boring, to be honest, so, but said, interjected and said, you don't understand. I'm not interested in what is preferred. I'm talking about what is required. And it just grabbed me. and I thought, oh, there is a comment for our age where the voice of the people was saying, yeah, but we don't want to do that. And this person was saying, but this is what's required. And we have lived through a time and are living through a time where we are so orientated towards the, the question is just what's more preferable? Like they're the choices, least or more preferable. Actually, life is breaking back in in all sorts of areas saying, actually, no, there's something required of you. There might be something required of you. And it's so foreign, we don't get it. Now here in this... Jesus is battling between what is preferred or not preferred, pain, suffering, humiliation, but what is required of who he is. There is a sacrifice because he is the Lamb of God. He is the long-awaited Messiah. There's a, an identity that requires something of him. So I kind of want to call that, but I went back to that because it's just easier to remember. Jesus did hard things out of his sense of who we are. Actually, I'll change it a little bit. Third, third title I've given you. This is terrible branding. Jesus did hard things, and I'm going to use this language, for the sake of his call. We're going to unpack. This is where we're going to talk about identity a little bit more. Now, when you see the word call, you, if you've been around the church for a while, we tend to use that name, that word call, there's actually only sort of two groups of people who get called. Or you might get called, it's to do what? Who gets called? Two jobs. To be a pastor, you need to be called, and what else? To be a missionary. That's where people hear the call of God. It's like pulling you out of, good, good though, Ken, because you, you're right. You're more right than this idea. We tend to use the word, because it's there, this sense of when you're going to do a, a Christian job, You've got to get called for that. And that is your call. Um, it's actually, it's just not right. And we'll come back to this. That is not, when the Bible talks, uses the word call, or when God calls, it's actually about identity, who you are. Think of your name. Now, for a moment, let's just think about the, the two ways. There's two predominant ways on which historically we draw our identity. Let's look at historically first. If you go back through pretty much most cultures across the planet, if not all, your sense of who you are was given to you. So remember identity, your sense of um, how you see yourself, what you think about yourself, your value, and then what you do. Largely historically and in traditional cultures still operating, it's given to you by firstly your family, but then your tribe, your clan, your people group. We actually had a wonderful example of this last week when Ben and Laura blessed us. I, mean, I always consider such an such a important moment when they came and shared from their heart the meaning for them around why Pearl. And they didn't say, Laura didn't say, well, I was, you know, watching Days of Our Lives and it was just a name I thought was pretty cool. No, they shared about what this means to them and their sense of, and it was amazing because Pearlie's a little older. They were talking about Precious and something Ben said that was, um, 
you know, that was like perfectly describing who Pearl is. There's this wonderful interplay where it's their heart as parents doing the thing where they're conferring identity right from where she was born, their sense of in God, and they did this prayerfully. This is who we sense this child, this precious gift is. And, but we're seeing Pearl grow into this identity. So there's this sense in which she has received some of this because that's the, that's the role of parents to some degree. Historically, and like I said, in, in traditional cultures, it's still very active. And if many people here um, who come from Asian or African or, or South American more, um, cultures, it's still operating where the sense is you will receive it from your culture. If you go back through the Anglo-Saxon heritage, it's right there in your name. If you're a smith, then there's every chance historically through history your dad made stuff, was a blacksmith or a silversmith. If you're a tailor, there's every chance your dad made clothes. If you're a clerk, there was every chance that your dad kept office. That's where we get clerk or clerical from. So it was there in your name. And actually, historically, the sense of purpose was given to you. You're in your village. That family, they make us stuff. They do the clothes. That family does the record keeping. That family does this. And you would culturally receive, guess what you're going to be? You're going to be a blacksmith. I don't want to be a blacksmith. Bad luck. Your sense of value was, whether, not was, was about whether you'd be good or bad at that. You're on a shame-based society. Will you step into that and bring honour to the family name and, and be a smith well by doing it well or by not? Now, as I have friends uh, from Asian and African communities, even more so that sense of living up to the expectation of the family. Am I right? That there's a, it's powerful and it's shaping and it's forming. That's, you, would, you see what I'm saying? You'd culturally receive that. And the question that was yours, are you going to be good or bad? Will you bring honour and shame? Well, I want to go to the, I don't want to be, a, I don't want to make stuff. I want to be a dancer. I'm going to go to the next village where I can be a dancer. Well, no, they've already got a dancer over there. You need to stay here. There was, it was much more culturally received. Now, if you, we were to describe and look at how identity now in the present age, particularly in the West, the Western world, it's actually individually attained. It's almost the exact opposite. Culturally received, individually attained. It's your role to find out who you are. And actually we can see this is a response to culturally received. There's some problems with that. What if just for all of your, like I would have been a terrible administrator. I am a terrible administrator. Again, Truders leaving and you're going to see that more and more. (laughs) So there's problems about this culturally receiving things because what if that's just not you and so we've moved away from that for good reason and for good for good purpose but we're now living at almost the kind of we're jumping the shark at the other end when we're individually attained a guy called charles taylor who's a catholic um, philosopher and thinker um, spoke about expressive individuality now see if read this this is actually another philosopher a current christian philosopher reflecting on charles taylor he said, emerging from rom- romantic expressionism, expressionism of the late century, whoop, of the late 18th century, it is an understanding that each one of us has his or her own way of realising our humanity and that we are called to live that out, express it, 
rather than conform to modes imposed by others, especially institutions like the family or the church. So you recognise that. It's, you, you'll you'll recognise the language that be, that's become just so much a part of the way in which we speak that expresses it. You've got to make your own path. You've got to be true to yourself. Yourself. You've got to be true to yourself. Look inside and in who you are. Be your most authentic self and you do you. All of that is coming from this massive shift to say actually the process of understanding identity is you look inside and you, based on how you feel, sort of intuitively, reflectively, I'm not trying to minimise this by the way, you say, I think this is who I am. And in this culture, let's go back to... Um, the individually attained, the most heroic thing you can do is to actually find a way that expresses who you really are in the face of everyone saying no. Think of how many times you've seen that plot in a movie. The most heroic thing that you can do when your, your identity is culturally received is to sacrifice and deny it and push it down for the sake of the greater we. Think of Lord of the Rings. It's hard to imagine some of the great historic sort of journeys, the Lord of the Rings, being written in this time. Because the hero stories are more about looking inside and saying, this is who I really am and against all odds. And I'm going to go at this point to I've, the highest point. I've talked about the philosophers, but let's talk about Elsa. Everyone, let it go, let it go. That whole story is about, this is who I really am. I've got to express it. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered. She's a hero because she's being who she really is. Now, I love Elsa. I love Frozen. I love the song. I do. Not as much as Josh does. Here's the thing. Let's go. Some of you automatically, as I'm, can, can you see that? Can you see that? Recognize, I'm, I'm using broad brush strokes. Can you recognize that? You can recognize that? Now, some of you automatically have gone, yeah, this is right, and this is, this is all that's right in the world, and this is all that's wrong with the world. Some of you have gone, yeah, this is right, and this is all that's wrong with the world. This duality I want to put to you is at the very core of, who, who's heard of the culture wars that's shaping, that's tearing the West apart? This is at the very heart of it. This tends to be conservatism. This tends to be progressive. This tends to be right, political. This tends to be left. This tends to be Christian. This tends to be non-Christian. In our stream, you go to another stream, this is Christian, this is not Christian. You just need to get out more, read more. But it's tearing the West apart because here's the big line, here's what's great. Can I just take my senior pastor hat off? I can't really, but I just want to talk as Graham, which is me saying, I just want to, I want to speak strongly, but I don't want to use the authority of saying, I want to notice it. It grieves me the way the church has gone all in on the culture wars as though it's something worth fighting for, as though one of these things is right. For all are sinful and fall short of the glory of God. Neither of these. 
there's elements that are right about it. We heard last night, uh, last week, and this is Rob talked about this beautiful. He said, oh, when we reflected and he shared, I realized how much of my identity was gained in my family, cousins, and big, and everyone. Oh, yeah, we love that. Straight after that, Dot got up and said, I came from it and shared very vulnerably. It was one of those sacred moments when people share. And she said, I came from a really tough family. And she wasn't speaking against Rob. She was telling her truth, her story. So I came from a really tough. I needed to leave my family to find who I am. You're going to tell me one of those is right and one of those is wrong? And yet, I still got the senior pastor hat off because I'm still going to just rage a little bit. Somehow, the church has gone all in Christians, I mean Christians, as well as of identifying with one of those and shouting at the others. And it's naive, it's not reading the Bible well enough, and it's not the way of Jesus. There are elements in both of those that are really important. But the way in which, if you read Scripture carefully and deeply, this is where we go to identity. Genesis 1, the word is called kara in, in Hebrew. When God gives identity, uh, when he is the source of identity, it's called kara, to name or confer identity. It's what we saw Ben uh, and Laura talk about. They conferred, they had this role of conferring, and it was straight from Genesis 1, what they were doing. Because God begins by naming, this is night, this is day, that's the sun, this is the earth, this is the water. He's, and it's his kara, you've got to roll the R's, I can never do it well. He's kararing everywhere. everywhere. It's just full of God kararing. And then he says, okay, humans, you name Remember that? You name the animal. And what's going on there is not a job. He's saying you have an identity. You have, in the God's ordered um, world, you have an identity to confer identity onto others. And so that's what we see at work there. In the New Testament, we see the same word, same sense of purpose to name or confer identity. But when God does it, when it's about God doing it and being the source of your identity, it's kaleo. Famously, Paul uses it in Romans 11. He says, the gifting and call of God are irrevocable. Now, here's where we go back to this thing and why it's so wrong and why it's neither are of God. God says, actually, your culture and your family are really important and you draw it, but you can't trust them to carry something that is a God-like thing to do. Your identity is not secure in them. And it's not secure in you either. It's only secure in me. It's only secure in me. And so God says, actually, uh, you're to draw your sense of identity in who I say you are, who I see you. And when Paul says the gift and calling of God, your identity, it's eternal. The the old, um, in the old King James, it says it's uh, the gift and call of God, uh, um, um, without repentance, which means to turn around. It's, you can't turn away from that. It's eternal. When we align ourselves with any sense of identity that doesn't pass into eternity, you're in trouble. When we gather around political identities, religious identities, we gather around things like our possessions, our job, 
Guess what doesn't pass into eternity? Newsflash. In heaven, there's not going to be left or right. Hell, thank you. Thank you. There's not going to be left or right, right? Why would you invest so heavily in your identity at the risk that what there will be is brothers and sisters, right? Do you think your relations pass into eternity? Why on earth would you so go so all in at the expense of relationships that pass into eternity? Why would you put something temporary on the line? Why would you sacrifice for something temporary? Why would you sacrifice something eternal for something temporary? Your status here on this earth, your wealth, I mean, it's just the scripture's full of it. It doesn't pass into eternity, right? You leave it behind. There's reason you might want to invest in that for generations to come. But if your identity is wrapped up in that and you, you sacrifice the things that are eternal, you're not aligned with a biblical worldview of how God brings on it. You're putting you something that God is meant to do in very shaky ground. How do you know where you're drawing identity from? I'm going to try and take a leaf from that mentor and just ask some questions here. What are you making the greatest sacrifices for? What's the hardest things in your life right now? What's really hard? What's making it really hard? Why are you doing them? I want to suggest humbly, as a friend, in all likelihood, that's actually where you're drawing your identity from. Whatever you're prepared to sacrifice for will be shaping you and your sense of identity. You might name it, not name it like that. You might not view it like that. But what's really challenging? What are you sacrificing for at the moment? And and what are you sort of what are you what's the cost that you're paying? So here we have Jesus in the garden prepared to sacrifice anything. Why? Because he's got he's clear on his identity as the lamb of God, as the Messiah. So it makes sense in God's economy for him to sacrifice everything. He's doing a hard thing. It's not saying it's easy. It's just worth it. Jesus says he comes to give you life abundantly. That's a promise. He comes that in him there's joy. Um, There's all these great promises, but it's actually usually the path is through some hard stuff. It's okay. We can do hard things. When we root our identity, if we're going to follow Jesus in that, I'll get the team to come up. If you pay attention to the life of Jesus, to what he says. And I think the Spirit of God is absolutely drawing us and his people back to this. Those who genuinely want to follow Jesus. There was a time we've maybe lived through, and maybe it'll continue, I don't know. um, But where it was easier to... Sorry, I'll keep that up. Thanks, mate. We'll just go back to that scripture there. Where maybe it was easy to keep our eyes on... um, on the great blessings. Life, life's been good. Life has been actually, for the fa- past 50 to 100 years, life has been historically better than ever before. Some people saying, maybe better than it ever will be again. That 
for some Christians and some people, they're, they're like, oh, no, that's dismay. No, no, we're just maybe returning to normal programming of life. That's okay. That's the context in which Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life abundantly. People didn't have big screen TVs. And kind of the, they, they were living hard lives. It's actually in the process of that that we get to value what's really important for us. Jesus said, if you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your, your life for my sake, you'll save it. Paul uses the language, which is, which is uncomfortable for us, because it's a little bit culturally uh, other than us. He uses the language of slavery to talk about identity. And actually some translations just, try and soften it a bit in the you know where they say servant he talks about himself i paul a servant of christ actually he's saying i'm a slave of christ because paul is saying and bob dylan agreed with him wholeheartedly you've got to serve something everybody here's here's the truth of the gospel that will set you free you're going to be a slave to something the real lie the 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 damaging lie of, of the individualism idea is this idea that you live as an individual. Nothing, nothing in history suggests that is true, that we actually live as individuals. You're not. You'll be serving something. It's just whether you're honest or not. Paul says, you are slaves to sin. You are drawing your identity. Either you did it yourself or someone gave it to you from things that were less than God. It fell short. You were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You're now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. Here's this idea of eternity. That stuff won't pass into eternity. It's not worth going all in on. It's certainly not risking what is eternal, the relationships and values that are eternal. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. So here's the hard thing. Jesus is saying, you're going to be a slave of something. Your identity, whatever you're sacrificing for, you're effectively becoming a, a slave to it. With God, and, and if it's God, then that's good news. That's good news because Paul says there's freedom there. I'm standing here testimony to say to the, the degree to which I've been able to genuinely become a, not just a servant, but a slave to God. It's been good for my life and it's been good for the people around me. And there's plenty of times where I'm, I'm a slave to something else and the wages of that sin are death. Maybe not mortally, but certainly things die. It doesn't make things flourish. So we are going to share communion again. The same as we did last week. Has everyone got a cup? I'm sure this is why Jesus said we're to do this regularly. To remind us again that Jesus' identity, he, he was prepared to do hard things to the cross, shed blood, break bread, because he was so clear on, on, on his identity in God. It says to me, as I said last week, it reminds me that he is the only one worthy for me to be a slave to because of what he's already shown he's prepared to do for me. There's so much in this about shaping our identity. I want to leave you with those questions because I reckon 
I reckon if you open these questions before God, I think there's, um, I think there's life in this. I think there's freedom in this. I'm just going to leave them there. Please take communion in your own time. We'll have some time to sit and, and worship for a while. Ben's going to sing. You've got to be a slave to something. That's where you're drawing your identity from. There's freedom in God.